Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve, your host, and we are getting ready to wrap up Black History Month for 2023, uh, picking up part two of the topic we started uh, last week. Uh, if you want to hear the part one segment, you can go to our archive sites uh, and find them there. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, uh, just about anywhere you get your podcast from. If you search for Fired Up, you will find us. All right, let's get it started. As always, we start with our update on where we are with the COVID pandemic here in the U.S., and we're currently at 103.4 million cases of COVID-19 reported. 1.125 million people have died from the disease and 672 million have received a vaccine, either one dose or single dose or double dose plus boosters. So we continue to make progress, uh, but the new Omicron variant, the XBB.1.5, uh, is now the dominant COVID strain being reported in the country uh, with the most hospitalizations out there. So it just points that we need to make sure we are keeping up with our safety protocols and doing what we need to do, mask wearing where appropriate, uh, social distancing, uh, hygiene, etc. Okay, let's uh, pick up from last uh, week's podcast where we were talking about uh, black history uh, as a part of American history. As you are aware, um, black history has been the subject of uh, much discussion and controversy over the uh, past few years. Uh, actually, it's been, it's always been a subject of controversy here in this country. But uh, in recent uh, years, it has come to the forefront, uh, spearheaded in large part by the efforts of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, and others who are looking at uh, ways of oh, cleaning, whitewashing, uh, filtering American history uh, to the exclusion of the contributions of African Americans and other people of color to the uh, conditions we have here in this country. So last week, we kind of talked about some of the things that uh, black inventors have contributed as well as a few notable names from black history. We're going to continue that, uh, that latter theme and uh, with shout out to a website called andscape.com. That's A-N-D-S-C-A-P-E.com. Uh, we're going to look at uh, a, a few of the 44 African-Americans who shook up the world, which is one of the stories that uh, they have on their website. I, I do encourage you to go take a look at it, uh, to go take a look at the website. Uh, there is a lot of inf interesting information there with regard to uh, contributions uh, to America and the world by African-Americans, but particularly there is an article called 44 African-Americans who shook up the world that I'm going to be referencing from for this piece. Now, I'm not going to go through all 44 uh, to uh, give discussion on. I probably would need a show lasting a week 
in order just to do that justice. But I am going to pick up a few of the uh, high points, some people you definitely do know and some that you may not know. And we will uh, kick it off with a gentleman by the name of uh, Robert Abbott. And uh, he lived from 1870 to 1940. And he's notable as a pioneer of the black press. Uh, he um, was born, as I said, just about five years after the end of the Civil War. And he founded a weekly newspaper called the, De the Chicago Defender, which is considered one of the most important black newspapers in history uh, that he founded in 1905. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, without his contribution, uh, there'd be no uh, Essence, there'd be no Jet, uh, no Black Enterprise, and sorry, uh, no The Undefeated. So, you know, he gave voice uh, to the voiceless through the, the, the vehicle of his newspaper. Uh, and I, I would bet that you probably may not have heard of him. So he is one individual who we need to give credit to for his pioneering uh, contributions to the history of African Americans in this country. If you have paid attention at all to uh, dance in this country, uh, then you've probably heard of uh, Alvin Ailey, but you may not know uh, a whole lot about him. Alvin Ailey was uh, born in 1931, and he passed away in 1989. Uh, he was a choreographer, civil rights artist, activist, and he uh, also was the founder of the uh, Dance Theater of Harlem, which still exists and is contributing to the dance arts in this country. Uh, he was a, a outspoken uh, civil rights activist and a tremendous uh, dancer and choreographer and many of his uh, his uh, dances and his choreography are still used and followed uh, to this day more than 30 years after his passing and of course unless you have been living in a cave without Wi-Fi reception for the last uh, half century or so then the name Muhammad Ali would have no meaning to you. But for the rest of us, uh, we all are familiar with uh, this legendary uh, boxing champion, born Cassius Clay in 1942 uh, and passed away from us in 2016. Pound for pound, probably the greatest uh, boxer in history, uh, not the least of which is because he kept telling us uh, that he was the greatest, and uh, he consistently backed it up with his work inside the ring. Additionally, though, he was a social activist and uh, community leader, uh, notably uh, when he uh, got stripped of his title and uh, was uh, ousted from boxing for several years during the Vietnam era because he refused to uh, be drafted into the army uh, during the Vietnam War on conscientious principles. Although not the first uh, activist athlete, uh, definitely uh, one of, if not the most outspoken 
uh, notably, uh, as I said, um, being stripped of his title and standing on his principle against the war in Vietnam. Uh, Muhammad Ali was a, a very much larger than life figure in the American sports world, in the political world, and in the uh, social and, uh, uh, so, and civil rights world as well. A name you may not know, but one that is no, no less important in uh, both American history and African American history, uh, Richard Allen, uh, who was a preacher, an abolitionist, a former slave, and an educator, uh, born in 1760, uh, died in 1831. Uh, he was the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal, or AME, Church in America. Uh, the church, now with a membership of more than two and a half million people and 6,000 churches, was the country's first independent black denomination. Uh, he was born a slave in uh, 1760 in Philadelphia. Uh, he earned, earned his way to freedom with $2,000 uh, and that of his brother. Uh, he chose the name Richard Allen, uh, as as a free man so you know again he uh was a leader in both spirituality and you know community activism of the time uh and another name that you know we need to make sure that when we were discussing african-american history uh, we include him another in the list of african-americans who contributed greatly to the fabric of the United States, and uh, one of my personal favorites, Maya Angelou, uh, born in 1878, and she left us in 2014. Uh, she was a uh, poet, a teacher, a, uh, a leader, and an outspoken uh, advocate for uh, civil rights and the rights of people, uh, especially the rights of women. Uh, she came up through a very hard life to achieve many of the great accolades our country has, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom, uh, a host of honorary degrees, and uh, also being selected uh, not only as the, the keynote, one of the keynote speakers in the inauguration uh, of uh, President Barack Obama, but also she was the Poet Laureate of the United States as well. Uh, as I said, she's one of my favorites. Um, I often read uh, some of her essays and poetry uh, and am always inspired when I do. When we talk about the civil rights movement here in this country, uh, we often mention names such as Martin Luther King, uh, Malcolm X, you know, and, and so forth. And we also include uh, you know, notables like Rosa Parks. Uh, one name that you don't hear often mentioned with regard to the civil rights efforts in the U.S. in the 1950s and 60s uh, is Ella Baker. Uh, she was born in 1903. She uh, died in 1986. Uh, she was um, proof that uh, visibility is not necessary to make an impact. Uh, she's one of history's lesser-known civil rights heroes, uh, yet she is uh, one of the most important. Uh, according to you know, the article, if Martin Luther King uh, was 
the head of the civil rights movement, Ella Baker, was its backbone. So she um, didn't let her gender keep her from defending her race. As I said, she was an outspoken advocate of equal rights. She was an outspoken advocate of equal treatment. And, uh, and all of this in the earliest stages of the civil rights movement through the, the early and mid-1950s. So someone else you should uh, be aware of um, if you're not and uh, read up and learn about. As I've said, many of the people whose names I'm mentioning here uh, you may not have heard of, but uh, you have definitely felt their influence. Uh, another one of those is Jean-Michel Basquiat. Uh, he was an artist. He was born in 1960 and he died in 1988. Uh, but you know, if, it, if there was no Basquiat, there'd be no graffiti. Without him, uh, there'd be no Banksy. Uh, so, you know, in an influencing well beyond his popularity or fame, someone else who contributed uh, tremendously to the African-American experience in this country and whose legacy continues to define our history. Mary, B Mary McLeod Bethune uh, was another of those legacy builders uh, including the legacy of the college that bears uh, her name, uh, Bethune-Cookman University, uh, also as an integral part and in one of the founders of the National Council of Negro Women. Uh, she was born in 1875 and she died in 1955. Uh, she was a civil rights activist and an educator, but a, definitely another name worthy of study and admiration in African-American history. Anyone who is familiar with the fields of sociology, uh, writing, or activism, uh, you can't go far into those fields without coming across the name William Edward Burkhart Du Bois. Uh, he wrote in his introduction to The Souls of Black Folk, published in 1903, that, quote, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of color line. Uh, and it could easily be said that that continues into the 21st century. Uh, and, you know, if, if history is any teacher, we will probably be well into the 22nd century by the time uh, any of that is rectified. But uh, no serious student of sociology or the African-American experience, as I said, can go far without coming across W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, and his work. Uh, it is considered seminal in uh, understanding uh, black culture and black life here in this country. Now, because black history is uh, not a singular or monolithic uh, course of study, just as black people are not monolithic uh, here in this country, uh, we can't ignore the influence of the arts and music uh, in the uh, the tapestry of, of African-American history in this country. We've already mentioned Alvin Ailey and uh, Jean-Michel uh, Basquat, but we have to include Duke Ellington in that collection. Uh, born Edward Ellington uh, in 1899, uh, he died in 1974, uh, and left us a legacy of music and culture 
that to this day still resonates through many artists uh, that are on the popular charts right now. So definitely worth looking up uh, this uh, flamboyant, elegant uh, composer and orchestra leader. Uh, and if, if you are at all a fan of big band music, then Ellington has to be in your collection. And as much as Duke Ellington represented the cool and the orchestration uh, of jazz and, and music in America, uh, the next one I'm picking, Jimi Hendrix, uh, was the cutting edge of uh, musical genius and instrumentality. Uh, a lot of people you know, look at you know, the great guitarists in the world, and anytime there is a list of the greatest guitar players uh, ever to have lived, uh, it, Jimi Hendrix is always at the top or near the top in any of those lists. Uh, his, his musical genius was uh, underappreciated in his day, but has come to be appreciated more and more for his artistry, uh, his mechanics, uh, his, his ability in, in playing a guitar and, and making a guitar speak its own language. Um, and... You know, not for nothing, it was listening to Jimi Hendrix that got me interested in playing guitar when I was a young teenager. Um, so definitely worth listening to his music uh, and uh, examining his life as well. So again, this list I'm picking from comes from a website called andscape.com. It's A-N-D-S-C-A-P-E dot com. I highly recommend that uh, you give this website a look that you let your your children take a look at this website uh, to get a really good solid broad picture of our history uh, one of the things that you perhaps will come away from it with is you know a a sense of uh, the arguments against the efforts that are ongoing now in terms of removing this type of of history information from our literature, from our, our education system, and so forth. You know, as I've mentioned, you know, uh, poster child for that in the current time frame is, of course, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. This next one I want to talk about um, is one that I actually was not aware of until I started doing the research here. And her name was Henrietta Lacks, and it's L-A-C-K-S. And if uh, you have any familiarity with uh, cervical cancer uh, or the treatments for cervical cancer and, and other diseases, then uh, her cells uh, are ones that uh, definitely uh, you have benefited from. Uh, born in 1920, died in 1951. Uh, why is, is this woman so important and so critical? to many fields of medical research? Well, it all boils down to the fact that um, doctors stole uh, cells from her body uh, and used them uh, going forward in research. Uh, she was a 31-year-old mother of five when she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Uh, uh, just months before her death, uh, doctors at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore sliced pieces of tissue from her cancerous tumor without her consent, in effect, stealing them. It was another instance of decades of medical apartheid 
and clinical practices that discriminated against blacks. Uh, she was not a slave, but parts of her cancerous tumor represent the first human cells ever bought and sold. Uh, and, you know, as I said, if you have familiarity with the treatments for cervical cancer, then you would have heard of something called HeLa cells, which were named for her. Uh, they were gathered uh, and they were determined to be unusual because they rapidly uh, reproduced and stayed alive long enough to allow for multiple testings. Uh, these cells, now worth billions of dollars, live in laboratories across the world. And you know they are, are critical and important parts of the research uh, that was used to develop the polio vaccine uh, that are used to this day in cloning, uh, gene mapping, and in vitro fertilization. The HeLa cell line has been used to develop drugs for treating herpes, leukemia, influenza, and Parkinson's disease. They've been influential in the study of cancer, lactose digestion, sexually transmitted disease, and appendicitis. So uh, again, a name you uh, most likely have never heard of, but one that has uh, produced wide benefits to the global community. Uh, and illustrating the point of, of argument against the exclusion of African-American history and the contributions of uh, black and other people of color here in the United States. Uh, and, you know, one that, you know, benefits the, the broad segment of humanity uh, around the world. And no study of the uh, deeper impacts of African-American history uh, in this country and in the world uh, would be complete if we didn't mention Ida B. Wells, uh, who was a journalist and a civil rights activist, uh, born in 1862, uh, died in 1931. Uh, she uh, was uh, the subject of death threats and torture for bringing international attention, uh, as well as shame, to the lynch mob terror that affected post-Reconstruction black communities in the United States. Uh, Ida B. Wells is a uh, journalist that is still studied in journalism schools to this day and definitely a uh, leader and uh, trendsetter and, you know, hero of the you know, fourth estate and the information uh, producing media that we have in this country and in this world today. From the earliest times of the African presence here in the United States, uh, the arts uh, and literature have been at the forefront of communication and conveying the ideas and worries and concerns spreading outward from the African diaspora to the broader uh, community in the United States and in the world. Uh, one of those uh, individuals who was at the forefront of this is a gentleman by the name of August Wilson, was born in 1945, died in uh, 2005, and he was a playwright. One of the, the, the common themes throughout uh, the history of enslaved people here in this country was the use of the arts and plays and, and other um, means to communicate uh, the message of uh, equality and injustice, uh, fighting against injustice, that is, 
that uh, happened here in this country. Uh, August Wilson, uh, considered by some to be America's Shakespeare, uh, wrote uh, many, many plays, uh, most notably uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and uh, talked about the struggle that was going on uh, through his lifetime and continues to this day. So that just in, in sum is a handful of the uh, people of color, particularly African-American people who have contributed to American history and the foundations of our country. Uh, it is uh, regrettable, uh, it is shameful that there is such a an effort going on in this country now to sanitize American history, uh, to, uh, to carve out and discard the contributions that have been made by so many uh, of people of color, so many African Americans in this country, not just to the development of our people, but to the development of this country. Uh, this list at Anscape.com uh, only contains, and I say only, it's an impressive list. I've only given you a taste of it. Uh, 44 individuals uh, that were, you know, outsized influence in um, both our history and American history. Uh, one of the things when you when you look at, you know, as I did the research and, and what my research uh, taught me, uh, one of the things that you see is that the benefits of the, the genius and the ingenuity and the, the drive of uh, African Americans in this country uh, benefited everyone in this country, regardless of uh, who they are, where they came from, what their race, etc. Et uh, and that's true of any you know, uh, figure that is, is out there at the forefront of their chosen profession. Uh, you can look across not just our history, but, you know, European history, African history, Asian history, uh, all of the histories of the world uh, involve uh, people who used their talents, used their skills, their gifts to benefit not just a, a select group but to benefit, and it sounds cliche, but to benefit all mankind. Uh, and that is the underlying truth of the power and the need for you know, ethnic history to be included in the fabric of American history. It is also why we need to make sure that we fight with every ounce of strength we have to prevent uh, individuals such as Ron DeSantis, such as Ted Abbott, such as others who seek to, uh, in their words, quote, purify, close quote, uh, America by eliminating references uh, to all but the, the most uh, politically acceptable uh, members of, you know, different races. When you talk about, you know, black history in this country, uh, in, invariably, uh, every school child knows about Martin Luther King, knows about Rosa Parks, maybe knows about Malcolm X. Uh, what they don't get the, the same level of introduction to are people like uh, A. Philip Randolph, 
uh, people like, um, you know, Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, you know, Malcolm X, all of these individuals uh, who were out there in the forefront of their fields were actually advancing what it is that makes America great. Uh, and it is not, uh, you know, one particular segment of our society that carries that burden. Um, people of color in this country have been contributing, have been leading, have been building and laying foundations for the greatness of this country since its inception. Uh, the, the, the fact that the house that the president uh, lives in, it's the center of our democracy, the White House, was built uh, in great part by uh, African slave labor. Uh, same with the Washington Monument, uh, that the railroads, uh, which you know, convey so much economic strength and wealth in this country, were built in their early days by uh, people of Chinese uh, ethnicity. That you know, it, it's it's all part of the fabric of what makes America. You know, and you know there are there are millions and millions of stories of uh, ethnic groups that came to this country and contributed their blood, their sweat, their tears, uh, and their work to building our country into the greatest nation on the world. And, you know, we can't sanitize that out of our history. Uh, we can't allow that to happen. So just uh, as we wind down to the end of Black History Month, uh, I I challenge us to turn it from just a single month where we hold black history under a magnifying glass. Let's work to turn it to uh, part of the overall documentation of the history of this country, right along with the contributions of you know, Irish Americans and Italian Americans and Polish Americans and, and all of these groups that go into this tapestry of America uh, we need to celebrate them. We need to keep their stories alive. So all that being said, let me, let me conclude uh, this portion of uh, the discussion on African-American history uh, with something that I consider a regret in my life. Um, I happen to be the, the son of a woman who was the youngest of 13 children, uh, born and raised in a small town in the, the western part of Virginia uh, by parents who were themselves the children of slaves uh, and who uh, predated the Emancipation Proclamation. One of the regret, regrets I have is that I never got the opportunity uh, when I was younger, because I was younger, of sitting down with uh, her brothers and sisters, uh, some of which predate, as I said, the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, and hearing and learning their stories. So I say that to say, let's make sure that you know our children are getting the benefit of our individual and family histories, because they're the underlying fabric of American history. It's the stories that our grandparents or our great-grandparents told and get handed down. That's where the history of this country comes from. And uh, to allow that to, to pass uh, beyond without having it 
you know, transferred uh, to the next generations is really a particular shame. So, you know, I encourage you to um, talk to your parents, talk to your grandparents, talk to your aunts and uncles, talk to the people who have lived the life before we lived the life and find out what they know uh, and make sure that you pass that down to your children. All right, we're going to take our break here. When we come back on the other side, uh, we'll get into some more uh, contemporary political news uh, going on from your activities of the past week. Uh, You're listening to the Fired Up Podcast. This is Steve. We'll be right back after the break. Young John Lewis, you're so full of passion. In your lifetime, you will be arrested 45 times in your mission to help redeem the soul of America. In 1956, when you were only 16 years old, you and some of your brothers and sisters and first cousins went down to the public library trying to get library cards, trying to check out some books, And you were told by the librarian that the library was for whites only, not for colors. I said to you now, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to continue to speak up, to speak out. You became so inspired by Dr. King and Rosa Parks that you got involved in the civil rights movement. Something touched you and suggested that you write a letter to Dr. King. You didn't tell your teachers, you didn't tell your mother and your father. Dr. King wrote you back and invited you to come to Montgomery. In the meantime, you have been admitted to a little school in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was there that you got involved in the sit-ins. You would be sitting there in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion, and someone would come up and spit on you, or put a light cigarette down your back, pour hot water, hot coffee, hot chocolate on you. <laughs> got arrested the first time and you felt so free you felt liberated you felt like you had crossed over free at last free at last thank God Almighty we are free at last you probably will never believe it but the boy from Troy as Dr. King used to call you will become the embodiment of nonviolence in America Two years after you speak at the march on Washington, you will see the face of death leading the march for voting across the Pettus Bridge in Selma. A marching today from Selma to Montgomery. We are marching to our state capital to dramatize to our nation and to the world our determination to win first prize citizenship. 
you would make it. You would live to see your mother and father cast their first votes. The change we need doesn't come from Washington. Change comes to Washington. You also live to see this segregated nation you lived in. Still an African-American president and his family to the White House. And guess what? Guess what? Young John, by some divine providence, as it is to send a message down through the ages, that man will be nominated on the 45th anniversary of the March on Washington. And all of those signs that you saw as a little child that said, white men, colored men, white women, colored women, those signs are gone. And the only places you will see those signs today will be in a book, in a museum, on a video. John, thank you for going to the library with your brothers, your sisters, and cousins. You were denied a library card. You were sad. But one day, you have been elected to the Congress. You wrote a book called Walking with the Wind. And the same library invited you to come back for a book signing where blacks and white citizens showed up. And after the book signing, they gave you a library card. And believe as Dr. King and A. Philip Randolph and others taught you that we're one people. And it doesn't matter whether we're black or white, Latino, Asian American, or Native American. That maybe our foremothers and our forefathers all came here in different ships we're all in the same boat now. John, you understood the words of Dr. King when he said we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters. If not, we will perish as fools. Rest in peace, Representative John Lewis. And thank you. And God bless you. And we're back. Thank you for listening to the message uh, right here on the Fired Up podcast. I appreciate it. If you have any comments or questions about our shows or issues that we bring up, please send them to the show to our email address at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I love to hear from the listeners out there. Uh, I definitely take into account what you're saying and uh, can address them as part of the show. So please send an email, firedupradio at yahoo.com. All right, let's get back into it. Um, we 
want to pivot to more current events, uh, particularly uh, what has transpired here in the U.S. over the past week. Uh, and, you know, it, it bears mentioning that the, the, the premise of this show is to talk about the political systems in this country uh, more so than to talk about the political figures in this country. I, I try to keep uh, the names out of it, but doggone it if they don't keep dragging themselves back in. Well, this week we get to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, uh, if you've been following the news, uh, made uh, some headlines uh, with her comment uh, suggesting that uh, the United States be split into red and blue states. Uh, she calls the idea a, quote, national divorce, quote, and in her comment, she talks about it uh, for people sick of Democrats' traitorous policies, uh, which uh, was part of her tweet that came out on President's Day. And, you know, just so that, you know, we, we, we paint this uh, as, as truthfully as possible, um, if you look at a map of the United States that identifies uh, the uh, parties, uh, particularly Republicans and Democrats, uh, what you see is not a country of uh, exclusively red states or exclusively blue states. Uh, Wikipedia has a really good map on their site if you search for uh, red states and blue states uh, on that site. And what you see is that when you break the demographics down, uh, both by the state and by the county level uh, more particularly, that we are not a red country or a blue country or a partly red or partly blue country. We're actually purple. Uh, what that means is that you know every state uh, that we designate as a red state has uh, significant uh, enclaves of Democrats. Uh, within that state. Same way with every state we designate as a blue state. Uh, there are groups of, you know, Republicans in that state that end up coloring the map uh, really into purple rather than either red or blue. Now, I say that to say that on President's Day, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is the uh, congressional representative for the 14th district of Georgia, which by the way, uh, although her district is red, Georgia is a quote, blue state, close quote, um, tweeted that the United States should be divided into red state and blue states. Uh, she uh, put out a, a tweet to that effect, including such um, suggestions that if, for example, you are a Democrat who moves to a uh, so-called red state, that your right to vote would be suspended for five years. Um, and, you know, definitely, you know, an, an anti-constitutional, uh, antithetical to the definition of America. Remember, we fought for our independence from Great Britain in the Revolutionary War because of taxation without representation. Well, she is suggesting that the same thing uh, would be applied 
for any one moving from a blue state to a red state uh, in, in her plan for how such an action uh, would be taken and what could be the uh, possible outcomes. So, you know, if, if you look at this from a uh, lessons from history perspective, uh, the last time we had something akin to this uh, was in 1861 when a group of southern states seceded from the Union over you know, the primary reason of the right to own uh, people as property, uh, as well as issues of the federal government encroaching on states' rights. Uh, here, what, uh, what Maggie is talking about is breaking up and, and designating states uh, as red or blue based on how they voted. And, you know, as I just mentioned, when you look at the map showing uh, the, the voting demographics, you find that, you know, even, you know, states that we call red are actually quite purple in that there are enclaves of, you know, the other party in the state for red states and blue states, etc. So in light of the fact that the Republicans control uh, the House of Representatives, even though it's by a razor-thin margin, uh, and that she was uh, one of the vocal leaders of a uh, group of ultra-conservative right-wing congresspeople who held uh, the speakership hostage until they got concessions from uh, then-Speaker of the House candidate Kevin McCarthy, now Speaker McCarthy, uh, in, and you know she is is flexing that power uh, as a you know as a member of um, the Homeland Security uh, Committee of the House of Representatives, uh, which was part of the deal uh, that was made in that uh, members from the the twenty or twenty one people who were blocking McCarthy's bid for the speakership. Uh, he made concessions, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into a, a little bit of that in a minute. But to get back to, to this, to this uh, tweet of uh, a national divorce, um, as is typical, at least we've seen, as is typical with uh, many such proposals uh, that come uh, particularly and, and mostly from the, the right side of the aisle, the Republican side of the aisle, uh, the what is defined, that is, what, you know, in this case, she wants to do is have the, the country split between red states and blue states. What is not defined or what has not yet been uh, enumerated by, um, by Green or by any other members of, you know, her conservative, uh, ultra-conservative minority of the Republican Party is exactly how that would transpire. And I say that because uh, to, to understand um, the impacts of you know, a, a, a number of states basically seceding from the Union uh, because uh, they disagree with um, large D Democrat uh, policies and, and governance of the country, 
they are not considering you know the impacts that that would create for everybody within that state. Uh, the federal government distributes some 3.5 plus trillion dollars a year to the states in the form of federal aid and grants. Uh, this is everything from transportation projects to education to um, you know you name it. Uh, these these grants are paid to the states. Uh, based on you know what their need is most normally or most typically based on the income level of the residents of that state now this fund comes from money that is paid by the states to the federal government and what you have is that there are certain states or some states in the country that pay more into the system than they receive out of it the uh, majority of these states in that situation that are paying more than they're taking are actually democratic or so-called blue states. Uh, most of the ones who uh, receive more than they give are, you know, Republican-led states, red states. So, you know, in, in her thinking of, you know, splitting these states out, what has not been as thoroughly fleshed out is what would happen, what would be done, what would need to be done to make up for the loss of, you know, this federal revenue. So, you know, there are, even in, in red states, in a country currently run uh, by Democrats, uh, these states receive money from the federal government for you know, building and repairing and upkeep of their highways, roads, and bridges. Uh, they receive money from the federal government for health programs. Uh, they receive money from the federal government for their school systems and education. Uh, and you know, it is possible that if they do sever ties with the United States, that you know, that money would dry up and go away. And, you know, these states that are receiving more than they're giving uh, would have a hard time making up that shortfall. Uh, not to mention the fact that there are significant federal assets located in these states. And by that, I mean things like military bases uh, and, and the, the requisite equipment that uh, they have. Um, you know, some of the states are home to uh, national defense installations like uh, you know our uh, missile silos and and so forth. Uh, there are some that also have you know federal research agencies located on on their territories. And you know what would happen to all of these if these states are no longer part of the union? Uh, would they you know? purchase them from the United States and, and continue to run them? Or, you know, would the United States basically, you know, foreclose on the properties, uh, clear them out, and, you know, basically, you know, tell these uh, secessionist states, you're on your own, figure it out. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot underneath the, the process of doing what she is suggesting 
that has not been communicated uh, and I, I dare say, you know, may not have been fully thought out or fleshed out uh, by um, Representative Green and others who share her belief in this uh, separation between, you know, the red and the blue. Um, you know, it, it is almost laughable that, you know, this suggestion would be made uh, if it weren't so doggone scary that, you know, that there's a remote possibility that something like this could happen. Uh, you know, as I said, the last time we had a situation like this, we ended up with four years of, you know, civil war, uh, half a million casualties, and impacts into uh, how this country fu how this country functions that exist to this very day. So, you know, it is it, it's it's weird. Uh, it's somewhat laughable, but it's also scary that a a concept or a proposal like this uh, would be made in 2023 uh, simply because of a, a disagreement in some of the fundamental uh, policies uh, that are being uh, provided by the federal government. Now, mind you, that many of the things that they are complaining about were actually uh, things that were initiated uh, or uh, continued under Republican administrations as well as Democrat administrations up to and including the immediate prior administration of, you know, uh, Donald Trump. So, you know, when I when I first heard this uh, proposal from her, all I could really do was kind of shake my head and, and go, what are you talking about? But as we've gone through the week and there's been, you know, more and more um, reporting on this, uh, the realization comes that, you know, maybe this is not something that is just going to get, you know, kind of chuckled and giggled out of town. And, OK, let's we've had our we've had our fun and let's move on and get some stuff done. So, you know, we, we will see how this transpires going forward. Um, this is just another part of what uh, I suspect and, and others suspect is part of the grand deal that Kevin McCarthy had to strike uh, in order to gain the votes he needed to become Speaker of the House. So, you know, to, to you, Mr. Speaker, um, you know, congratulations on getting the gavel. Uh, I hope you can afford to pay the bill uh, that is, is going to be coming due. So we're, we're going to pivot from this to another instance that kind of points up uh, what may be uh, another one of the concessions that was made by McCarthy. Uh, also this week, it was reported that um, Speaker McCarthy has instructed the Capitol Police and other uh, investigative agencies to provide more than uh, 41,000 hours of uh, videotape on the January 6th uh, insurrection uh, to... Uh, not the media, uh, not the newspapers, but to a singular person, to uh, Tucker Carlson of Fox News, just him exclusively. 
Now, you know, this raises uh, all kinds of uh, questions and concerns because uh, it is possible and likely that once um, Carlson gets a hold of these uh, hours of video, that he is going to prepare a highly edited, highly redacted version of events in support of the, the theories that he's been espousing over the last two years since January 6th uh, about you know, the nature of the insurrection and uh, what happened. You know, such things as that it was an FBI plot that the, um, the rioters or the insurrectionists were largely made up of Black Lives Matter and Antifa uh, individuals and not uh, related to uh, former President Trump. Now, you know, we all watched this event transpire in real time uh, on TV. Uh, we have seen countless numbers of, you know, clips and documentaries done and you know reports made about what went on in the Capitol building on January 6th uh, so the the possibility that Tucker Carlson is going to produce a revisionist history of what happened on January 6th with the aim of coming out with a different conclusion that it wasn't an insurrection uh, that it was a protest or you know, that it was uh, people taking a tour of the Capitol building, as, as has been expressed, you know, over, over the last two years, um, just is something that, you know, the, the, the public needs to be cautious about and um, fearful and look at definitely with, you know, the, uh, that, that clear-eyed uh, wisdom and, and rack it up against the memories that we have uh, from what was reported and what was shown to us, again, in live and in real time. We watched this event transpire. Uh, so, you know, it, it really is something that should give us concern uh, because it is a case where uh, revisionist history, you know, that we've, we've been talking about, you know, through the first half of this episode in another context, uh, is, is a real thing. And, you know, it is dangerous to, you know, change events that have been recorded just to fit a political narrative. So we will see what comes of the release of these, uh, again, 41 or 44,000 hours of uh, videotape uh, of the insurrection events um, as they go forward, keeping in mind that uh, he's not just requesting, you know, specific segments of the recordings, he's requesting it all, some of which shows, um, you know, methods and means of how the uh, police responded, uh, the escape routes that were used by uh, the uh, congressmen and senators who were in the building certifying the vote of the 2020 election and, and other sensitive elements that, you know, could become public knowledge and could become part of a blueprint, uh, in my opinion, for another attempt 
uh, coming up for 2024. You know, uh, many people in the media have said that, you know, the insurrection of January 6th uh, was a dress rehearsal and that the next time uh, one is uh, attempted, uh, it will be uh, in light and learned with lessons learned from January 6th and, you know, could be a lot more consequential to the future of American democracy. So we'll keep track. We'll keep uh, you posted uh, as to what transpires from this release of uh, video to Tucker Carlson. I do say and I would would bet money that this will not go forward unchallenged by a lawsuit by one or more of uh, the uh, other media outlets, uh, whether they are, you know, right or left or, you know, independent, simply from the fact that this kind of information uh, needs to be uh, publicly disclosed and something needs to be done to have a check and balance on the information flow that will come out of this. So we'll keep our eye on it and we'll let you know what transpires. And in other news that comes out of the uh, House of Representatives in Washington, a report by NBC News uh, mentions that uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries uh, have agreed to create a bipartisan task force that will establish a process to remove members from committees. And this comes from uh, aides to the two lawmakers, as reported to NBC News. Uh, the, the driver behind this is the level of fallout that occurred by, by the uh, House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, calling for uh, the removal of Representative Ilhan Omar, a uh, Democrat of Minnesota, from the Foreign Affairs Committee, which uh, also occurred over the last week, 10 days or so. Uh, he has taken a lot of heat for that removal, uh, many seeing it as a tit-for-tat uh, action because the prior uh, Congress, the 117th Congress under Speaker Nancy Pelosi, removed both Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, and uh, Congressman Gozert from their committees based on uh, some activities and comments that were made by Green, as well as a post from Gozert showing fellow Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, being killed. And you know these two events led uh, Speaker Pelosi to remove them from all of their committee assignments, uh, which of course drew the rancor of uh, House Republicans. Well, now the House Republicans are in charge, and you know McCarthy had promised that if he got the gavel, that he would do this thing, and he has done it. Uh, not to say that he hasn't taken heat from both uh, Democrats as well as some from his own caucus for the action, with the loudest complaints being around the fact that not only did uh, the actions taken by uh, Nancy Pelosi in the 117th Congress uh, to remove members from their committees, as well as the, uh, the process that McCarthy applied to remove Representative Omar from hers, uh, 
that these processes lacked, uh, you know, due process, and that uh, it it had the appearance of being purely uh, personal uh, political attacks. So the the idea is that McCarthy and Jeffries will pull together a bipartisan committee uh, made up of uh, equal number of Democrats and Republicans. And a preliminary list uh, shows that uh, from the Republican reps, Nancy Mace of South Carolina, uh, she is being offered the position of chair, Tom Cole of Oklahoma, Ken Buck of Colorado, and David Joyce of Ohio, and Democratic reps Jim McGovern of Massachusetts, Virginia Escobar of Texas, uh, Nikima Willis of Georgia, and Derek Kilmer of Washington. So the, the idea is that this committee will establish some type of due process for the, um, the, the work needed to be done in order to remove a member from their committee assignments. Uh, this is, you know, separate from any effort by the full body of Congress to remove a member from Congress. This is just to pull people uh, off of their committee assignments. Um, and, you know, it, it actually is a good thing from the standpoint of creating a formal uh, fairly debated and decided process to do this that both sides can live with, but also that it, it represents um, how these two leaders can, in fact, work together. And that bodes well. Uh, that could be a good thing. It's a good indicator of, you know, kind of where perhaps we can go with the Democrats and Republicans in the House of Representatives going forward. So we'll keep an eye on this committee. And when we get more details and you know, decisions and actions, we'll bring them to you right here on the Fired Up podcast. So the, the last bit that I want to bring up before we sign off for the week is this. Uh, there was a, a picture that came from one of my um, news sources uh, and it it struck me uh, interesting it struck me as uh, curious uh, a lot of times I think as I said uh, earlier uh, Republicans tend to expend a lot of energy talking about the what uh, primarily to to energize their base uh, to get you know, the, the buy-in of the Republican voters into what they're doing. And they don't really get into the details of how they're going to get it done. Uh, related to that, but in a different sense, there was a picture that was circulated uh, that depicts the stage of the most recent uh, Conservative Political Action Committee, or CPAC, meeting. And on the, the banners, on the digital banners uh, showing above the stage is a statement that says, we are all domestic terrorists. Now, you know, I, I saw that and my first reaction was, yeah, okay, whatever. But then as I thought about it more and thought about it in the context of, you know, what, 
we've reported here on this show to you and what other news outlets have been talking about over the last two years. And I was reminded of something that Maya Angelou said, and that is that when someone tells you who they are, believe them. So I, I, I looked at this picture and I said, okay, conservatives, uh, we are all domestic terrorists. So is that what you're telling me? Uh, is that who you are? Is that what you are? You know, just, you know, food for thought, something to take away with um, as we, you know, finish up the month of February. Um, and, and again, uh, you know, February is Black History Month where, you know, we focus uh, the the lens of, of our observation on black history in this country, but it should not be the only month in which it's done. Um, coming in March, uh, so, you know, day after tomorrow, which is the 1st of March, uh, will be uh, Women's History Month, and we will do the same exercise for the uh, contributions and and achievements of women in this country. But I, I say that to say that these are all subjects that need to be 12 months, that need to be a, the full year we need to be having discussions on African-American history, on women's history, on, you know, Latin, Hispanic history, on all of it, because it is all, as I said earlier, it is all part of the fabric and tapestry of our American history. All right. So with that being said, uh, we'll wrap it up for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have comments, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. I look forward to seeing those comments and responding to them. Uh, and uh, otherwise, please make sure that you stay safe. Have a good week. And we will do this all again in seven days.